chapter 42, Genesis 42, that's page 35 on your pew Bible, and we'll read the whole chapter today. Genesis chapter 42, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at each other? He said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there so we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Joseph did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them as strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. They said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph sent to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And, then, and they did so. And they said to each other, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul, when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you, or did I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and he wept. He returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them, bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder in the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, 
And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your household, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to me, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son will not go down with you. For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs to sorrow, to shoal. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I ask you to take your Bibles once again and turn to Genesis 42 in case they've fallen closed on your laps. I want you to open up there so that you can interact with the Word of God as we study it. I don't know about you, but I'm thoroughly enjoying our study of the life of Joseph. I, I am, though, starting to get that, that nagging feeling, you know, that same feeling that you get when you're, I won't say binge-watching, but, you know, systematically working your way through a series on Netflix uh, for my wife and me, it's something like Mountain Men uh, that we like to watch. And you eagerly press play on the next episode, and you're totally into it. But at the same time, you have this nagging sense, this dreadful feeling that you're coming to the end of the season. And soon enough, you won't see that little box in the bottom right that offers to automatically play the next episode for you, because there won't be another episode. That's what I'm feeling as we approach the end of Genesis here. Uh, I'm uh, thoroughly loving the word of God. But as I say, um, that dread that I'm feeling does not detract in any way from the eager anticipation we feel as we come into chapter 42, as that episode is loading and buffering. We wonder what Joseph will be up to right now as the prime minister of Egypt. Egypt now being in the throes of a really severe famine. And we've come to admire this young man, haven't we? He's, he's demonstrated such skill and discernment and wisdom, which he would be quick to tell you is not found in anything in him. It's, it's totally a result of the fact that he is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That was recognizable even to Pharaoh. In many respects, Joseph has served as an example to us. 
um, a model of, of what faith looks like in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Um, steadfastness in the midst of trials and temptations. And last week, uh, you'll recall that he stood before us as a model minister. Not the ultimate example of what it looks like to serve the Lord and to meet the needs of your neighbor. Uh, not the ultimate example, uh, but he was such a model that he could point us to that ultimate example. In chapter 42, however, I, th I think Joseph plays a slightly different role for us. I, rather than showing us something about how we ought to live, I think this time Joseph is illustrating for us something about how God operates. We see, we see in this prime minister a sort of parable about God's providence, uh, his promises, his purposes. We, we understand these a little bit better, I think, through what we see the Lord doing through Joseph. And I'm getting this idea from the fact that at various points in this chapter, Circumstances which are orchestrated by Joseph, those are interpreted by the brothers as, for example, in verses 21 and 28, you can see, those are interpreted by the brothers as being, having been brought about by God. So behind Joseph's actions, they see the actions of God, and they're not wrong. They're not wrong. And through the actions of Joseph, and we have to admit to ourselves at this point, his actions in this chapter seem, on the face of it, they just seem bizarre to us. And we're kind of confused by it. But through those confusing, those bizarre actions, we can see a little something about the mystery of God's workings in our lives. The mysterious way that God deals with us. If this chapter had a soundtrack, I, I'm pretty sure it would be William Cooper's uh, hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Grateful to the Howards for introducing us to John Newton. But one of John Newton's contemporaries uh, uh, was another hymn writer, a poet by the name of William Cooper. It looks like it should be pronounced Cowper. Maybe you've seen that name before. Um, that, that old hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, has been in my head all week long, so you'll forgive me if I allude to it from time to time. Well, let's get into it. Let's uh, settle into your seats with your, with your Bibles open on your lap, and I'll go ahead and press the skip intro button, and let's just discover four things about the workings of the Lord four things about the workings of the Lord. And first, I want you to consider that God's promises are always ripening. God's promises are always ripening. Now, the last episode ended with some pretty tasty foreshadowing, in my opinion. We're told that all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because famine was severe all over the earth. All the earth, you say? You, we wonder if that includes Canaan. 
we wonder if Jacob's family might be part of that throng coming from all these different areas, coming to Egypt to buy grain. And wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be amazing? And sure enough, when the lights come up on this chapter, the setting has changed. Uh, we were in Egypt. Now we are in Jacob's house. We're back in the land of Canaan, where indeed there was famine. And the sheaves have bowed, you might say, in that land under the, under the heat of relentless sun and uh, scorching winds. And Jacob makes clear that this now for the family is a matter of life and death. They're in dire straits. The patriarch says to his sons, why are you guys standing around looking at each other? Which is just such a dad thing to say, isn't it? I, I love the Bible. It's just so real. Rumor has it that the, there's grain for sale in Egypt. And these boys should have been on the road like yesterday. Now, when I say boys, I, of course, mean these grown men, all of them with families of their own. And when I say these boys, I mean just 10 of them, just 10 of them. Benjamin, the youngest, who's not young, he's certainly in his, in his 20s at this point, uh, maybe approaching his, his 30s. Benjamin is the youngest, and ostensibly he's the last remaining child of the favorite wife. Well, he needed to stay behind. This journey was too dangerous and too many bad stuff. Things have already happened to this family. And Jacob, his father, just couldn't bear to comprehend what it would be like without him. And so you can see from verse 4 that Jacob is still operating out of fear rather than faith. He's, he's paralyzed by his, his worry that harm is going to happen to him. He's self-centered and he's fearful, which is a terrible spiritual predicament to be in, not to mention the physical predicament that he's in in the midst of a famine. So the 10 brothers arrive in Egypt uh, and they're, they're there in the throngs of people that are the caravans that are coming from countries surrounding Egypt. And these brothers come before the governor, the one who's in charge of dispensing all of this grain and selling. And we know that to be Joseph. Now, I want you to pay close attention to, this, to the second half of verse 6. Look there with me. It says, And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Now I want you to press pause, okay, freeze that frame, and rewind in your minds back to chapter 37. Um, this might be easier for you because Glenn earlier read this portion of scripture for us. You got to go back 20 years. Go back to that morning where the, the brothers are sitting around the breakfast table and Joseph tells them about a dream that he had that night. He said, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, press pause on that one. 
and you can superimpose one of these freeze frames on top of the other. It's, it's nearly a perfect match. It's not quite a perfect match, but it's nearly a perfect match. So, so ask yourself, what did Governor Joseph see that day in Egypt? He saw bowing sheaves. He remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them. And, and what do we see when we look at that scene, when we see the overlay of those freeze frames? What, do you, what can you conclude, believer? That God's promises are being fulfilled. In his hymn, Cooper assures us that God's purposes will ripen fast and that they're unfolding every hour. More recently, the Gettys used similar imagery to remind us that God flowers every promise of his word. They're not just buds, but they, he, he brings them into full flower. That's what he's in the process of doing. Even when nothing else seems to be sprouting in Canaan, or over the rest of the earth for that matter, all of the Lord's promises are ripening and flowering in front of people's faces. Now I'm struck by the fact that the brothers at this point are oblivious to what is happening, you know. In other words, what I'm saying is, th this is what's striking, God's promises are being fulfilled without their cooperation and despite their stubborn objections. You remember back to that breakfast table when they first heard about the dream from this dreamer. What did, what did they say? What was their reaction? They, they laughed it off. They mocked him. They said, will you indeed reign and rule over us? Yeah, right, Joe. In your dreams. That's, that's where it's going to stay, is in your dreams. And they hated him all the more because of the dreams that he dreamed and because of his words. So the brothers to a man are, are resisting this idea, this notion. They're actively resisting it and mocking it and rebelling against it. But listen, there's something more stubborn than the stubborn hearts of prideful men. I'm talking about the stubborn promises of God. The, the surety and the certainty that the Lord is going to do everything that he has ever promised that he's going to do. And this is, this is a word for you, anyone who might be here today who is still rejecting King Jesus. To, to you who might be saying something like this with your lives, even if you're not explicitly saying this with your lips, you, you're saying, I will not have this man to rule over me. That's what you're saying about Jesus. And you need to know that the day is coming, and it's coming relentlessly, stubbornly. The day is coming when every knee shall bow, when your knees will bow instinctively and your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now to, for those of you who are in Christ, the reality that the Lord's promises are ripening, that ought to result for you in, again in the words of the hymn, 
in you having fresh courage. You can take fresh courage. Think, think of what an encouragement it would have been for Joseph to see those bowing sheaves. It would have been another big piece of evidence for him that the Lord is in this thing. That the Lord is working out all of his purposes and all of his promises for his own glory and for the good of his people. This more than qualifies the Lord to be the perfect hiding place for your hope. You're looking for an object for your hope in a difficult time, in a time where it seems like all of your hopes are failing, no matter where you place them. Put your hopes in a, a God who is stubbornly fulfilling his promises and accomplishing everything that he said that he would do. This is the place where you can stand. Okay, we can uh, hit play again. Take, take it off pause for, for now. And that will enable us to see a second thing about how the Lord works. We can see from the text in the second place that God's presence is often not recognizable. God's presence is often not recognizable. In verses 7 and 8, the narrator tells us that while Joseph is recognizing his brothers, they don't recognize him. And there's a lot of reasons why this might be the case. This is not far-fetched, as some liberal scholars think. This, this is very realistic. First of all, they're not at all expecting to see the brother that they kidnapped and sold into slavery to be the prime minister in Egypt. So when you're not looking for something, when you have no category in your mind for something, you're, you're not going to be recognizing it, even if it's standing in front of you. Furthermore, 20 plus years has passed and Joseph's appearance would have changed. Okay, I certainly look very differently at 40 than I did at 17. Um, that, that's for sure. And in Canaan, Joseph would have had a beard. And in Egypt, it was required, it was cultural that he would be clean shaven. His jewelry, his style of dress, all of his Egyptian paraphernalia, all of that would have made it very easy for these 10 brothers to miss the fact that this was their long-lost brother standing right in front of them. Now, I hope you don't think I'm stretching things too much, but the narrator seems to be trying to get our attention by repeating the fact that these brothers don't recognize Joseph, but he recognized them. In fact, this whole passage unfolds around the idea that Joseph is in the know, but his brothers are not. Joseph has information to which the brothers are not yet privy. And if I'm right in suggesting that this passage is a, is a sort of parable that helps us understand something of the workings of the Lord, then I can't help but think that Moses wants to, us to understand that this same dynamic is often at work in our, in our circumstances. You know, the Old, um, the Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke agrees, and he writes this, the knowing Joseph and the unknowing brothers function as a microcosm 
of the knowing God and the unknowing humanity. And what he means by that is that we, like the brothers, often don't recognize the presence of God. Or we don't discern his hand of providence until sometime way down the road. But God recognizes us, even when we don't recognize him. In the same way, as our lives unfold, as, as the Lord's purposes unfold, there, there is a definite discrepancy between who is in the know and who is missing critical pieces of information. I won't make much of this point, except to just point out to you that it's important that we are aware of the facts, that we are often not aware of all of the facts. And we ought to consider that before we say things like, where are you, Lord? Or, God, if you only knew. No, in our circumstances, if there is a recognition failure, it's ours, it's not his. If, if there's an information deficit, it's on our side, it's not on his. Uh, judge not the Lord with feeble sense. Let's see in the third place that God's providence is sometimes rough. God's providence is sometimes rough. Sometimes rough. I, I apologize, I made a mistake on the sermon outline that's in the bulletin, or if you got it by email. So you'll want to change the word always on point number three, to sometimes. Thankfully, God's providence is not always rough. Many times it's delightful, extraordinary, blessed. But sometimes it's rough. We read in verse seven that Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. There's, there's a gruffness in his voice as he barks at them in Egyptian. As he's, as he's yelling at these men from Canaan, accusing them of being spies, uh, suggesting that they're only here to do reconnaissance work in a land that has been severely ravaged by famine. They're trying to exploit that volatile situation and plan for an attack where they can take over all of these storehouses of grain. You're spies, Joseph says. You've, you've come to spy out the nakedness of the land. That's Joseph's conclusion, and he repeats the charges something like four times in total in the space of just a few verses. Despite their protest to the contrary, now, as, as someone who has crossed international borders plenty of times in my lifetime, I can attest to how effective these tactics are. You know, the officers at the border crossings, they're, they're federal agents, and they're trained in interrogation techniques. They, they know how to speak roughly to you so as to trip you up and try to extract information out of you that's not forthcoming otherwise. In the case of the brothers, look at the information that comes tumbling out. Look at verse 11. We are sons of one man. We are honest men. 
We've never been spies. Have you ever played that game, Two Truths and a Lie? Well, by now you know these brothers well enough that it's easy to spot the lie. Honest men, you, you, would, you would describe these brothers a lot of ways, but honest is not one of them. It's actually, it's almost laughable that they would say this. Especially after, um, you know, Joseph repeats the accusation, even more information comes tumbling out. Look at verse 13. We, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. No more, eh? Well, they're leaving out the part about how they planned to kill him, or at least leave him for dead, until they decided instead to sell him into slavery. A little piece of information that they're withholding. In any case, their honesty is going to have to be tested. This is the part that, that Joseph is going to press them on too. They, so he says basically, you know, like you're, you, you keep talking about this other brother back home. Well, if you're telling the truth, there's a simple way that we can prove this. If you're telling the truth, then you should be able to produce that kid. And here's what's going to happen. All of you are going to go to jail except for one of you. One of you can leave and, and bring grain back, but then you're going to need to come so that I can meet this youngest brother. And Joseph puts him in the slammer for three days. Now, I've, I've been in the slammer at an international border. I don't know if you knew this about me. And I can assure you that it is no joke. There, there was a clerical error once on my U.S. passport. And the issue was discovered when the border agent at the, at the gate, he asked me where I was born, and I told him Etobicoke, Ontario, and, which is the truth. But he's looking at my passport, and under birthplace, it says Louisville, Kentucky, <laughs> which is where I was naturalized. It's a sort of birth. It's where my U.S. citizenship was birthed, but it's not where I was birthed. Well, they hauled me in so fast, it would make your head spin. They locked me in this room, and then they proceeded to just yell at me for, it felt like hours, going on and on about fraudulent documents and how devastating the consequences would be for a federal crime such as this. And I couldn't really blame the officers because they didn't know. They didn't know. They, they pulled up all my records. They made some phone calls. They yelled at me some more. But then they finally did figure out what the story was, and I was released. But up to that point, they didn't know. But Joseph does know. Joseph does know. So we, we would ask, well, why, why is he speaking roughly to them? Why the interrogation? Why the jail time? Why the demand uh, for Benjamin, who he knows it's going to be impossible for his father to part with? Why, why is Joseph doing all of this stuff? And we think that we know the answer. It's payback time. 
when we're rubbing our grimy little hands together this is this is great this is the best part of episodes on tv is when there's a confrontation when bad guys have their come up and come up and they get what they deserve it, these these brothers have come to buy food and, and joseph's fixing to serve them up a cold dish of revenge which apparently is how that dish is best served i didn't I don't know, but he's going he's gonna to mess with them. He's going to make them squirm. He's going to watch them suffer, and he's going to take great delight in it because that's exactly what they've done to him. They've made him suffer. So it's a taste of their own medicine. If that's what Joseph's doing, we don't even blame him. It's exactly what we would want to do. It's exactly what we often do when people sin against us. And isn't this also what we think the Lord is up to? Whenever we experience a, a rough patch of providence in our lives, we think, oh, it must be payback time. It must be that God is treating us according to our sins, that he's giving us exactly what we deserve. And we, so we look for, a, is there a one-to-one -one correlation between what I'm experiencing now that's very difficult and some sin that I've committed? Because we think that's how God operates. But is our interpretation correct? Is our interpretation of what Joseph is doing correct? Is this payback time for him? I don't believe so. If he's acting out of vindictiveness, that is totally out of character for the godly man that we know him to be at this point in the story. Even though we're kind of like we would be cheering him on, there's still something that doesn't seem right if we take that approach. If, if that's how we're reading this chapter, this chapter isn't as satisfying as we think that it might have been. And that's because... It doesn't fit the, the wisdom, the, the humility, the grace that we know Joseph to possess by the Spirit of God. Plus, there's a major tell in verse 24. Look there with me. Because by, by this point, I realize I'm hopping around a bit, but by verse 24, Joseph has to turn away from his brother. All of these guys, he's got to turn away from them so they don't see him cry. He, he's like totally moved by what he is seeing taking place. And then when he's regained his composure, then he goes back to the rough talk and the rough action of binding Simeon and who's going to be the one kept in custody while the others return to Canaan with the grain. And even in that little detail, you can, you can see the tenderness of Joseph. You know, first it was supposed to be that would, nine would stay in jail and one would go back. But three days later, it's Simeon alone staying in jail while ten return. There's, there's a tender heart behind all of this on the part of Joseph. And, and are you starting to see the, the tender affection that Joseph can only just barely contain? Whatever he's up to, it's certainly not mean-spirited. It's not vindictiveness. His motives come into even clearer focus, I think, when he instructs his servants to load up 
uh, these guys' donkeys with sacks of grain and also to replace all of the brothers' money with the grain in the sack. Why did he do that? Why that piece? Well, the answer is not because he wanted to bless them. It, it's not, you know, because they get the family discount. They get the perks of being related to the guy, and so they get freebie, and Joseph wants to, you know, bless them with this food without cost. I don't think it's that. Because we know that they didn't receive this as a blessing. When the, when the brothers discover the money, first at the Holiday Inn that first night, in one of their sacks, and then uh, when they return home and they're emptying out all of the grain, that's when all of them discover that they've all got their money back. When that happened, these guys are horrified. They're shaking in their boots. This is not a, they're not like, yes, score, we got all this for free. They're scared to death. This is not a blessing. This is, this is going to land them in even deeper trouble with the governor. Suddenly, these, these men are faced with a choice. They could just, you know, I guess, keep the grain and the silver and never return to Egypt again. Because if they did, you know, they're, they'd see that their faces are on posters all over, you know, like stapled to all of these pyramids. And they, they, they're wanted men at this point. But it, it would mean, if they decided to stay away and lay low, it would mean that they couldn't bail out Simeon, who's locked in an Egyptian prison right now. And the, it would mean that they would lose another brother. Or they could return to save Simeon. But it would mean putting themselves in peril. Here's their choice in a nutshell. It's either the silver or the brother. Last time, in the case of Joseph, these brothers chose the silver. 20 shekels of it. They left their brother in a pit and pocketed the silver. The question is, will they do that to another brother? Or will rescuing Simeon win out over recovering silver. Do you see that what Joseph has done brilliantly with much skill and wisdom and discernment, full of the spirit, and with much love for his brothers, is to give them a test. And it's a redemptive sort of a test. You know, it's a redo. It, it's an opportunity for them to, to do the right thing this time. It's an opportunity for them to restore this broken family. Behind the governor's rough talk and difficult decrees, Joseph can barely contain his emotion, and he's acting out of great love and affection for his brothers, and he's seeking to extract something redemptive from them. Do you see? Brothers and sisters, have you yet learned that this is what the Lord is up to whenever he decrees that which is difficult in your life. Whenever his providence in your life is rough, 
Have you, have you come to understand about God, in the, in the words of Cooper, the hymn writer, that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face? Have you learned to then trust him for his grace? Mark my words, the Lord is not being vindictive with you. He's not out for his pound of flesh because he's already got that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on your behalf. The Lord has gotten his pound of flesh. There's no vindictiveness left. There's no wrath left to pour out on you through difficult circumstances. The Lord is trying you, and he's determined to extract fruit from you. Your, your difficult circumstances are not about revenge in any way. They're, they're about redemption and restoration. They're about righteousness. The Lord is pursuing your holiness. Well, let's turn to the fourth point to see what it is primarily that the Lord is determined to draw out of us by designing these rough providences. And I want to say here that God's purpose is our repentance. The high point of this chapter actually comes in the middle of it, right in the heart of it, between verses 21 and 24. It's found in this conversation that the brothers have with one another. They're speaking Hebrew, thinking that no one can understand them with this language. Up to this point, they've been using an interpreter. Joseph's been using an interpreter. So he's able to listen in on this conversation without them knowing. And what we see is now, after 20 years, these brothers are finally beginning to own up to their sin that they committed against their brother. Here's the truth, these honest men say to one another. If you want the truth, here it is. We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Now that's a detail that we didn't have on the first telling. And that detail paints such a tragic picture, doesn't it? It shows you the depth of Joseph's pain and sorrow, that he would cry out to them, that he would beg them for mercy. And it shows you the hardness of his brother's heart, just their cruelty to have to ignore those kinds of pitiful pleas tells you something about the state of their hearts. Four days ago, they're successfully stifling the sound of a 17-year-old sorrow. They, they've, they've figured out kind of how to tamp that down in their consciences so that they can live. But now, because of some rough provenance and because of the Lord's designs, their sin is now weighing heavily on them. Their, their consciences are are enlightened, so to speak. And listen to Calvin's comments about what the Lord is up to in this moment. He says, 
before affliction pressed upon them, they were in a state of torpor. They were basically like inactive, hibernating in their minds. But now they are compelled, so to speak, to enter into their own consciences. We see then how in adversity, God searches and tries men. And how, while dissipating all their flattering illusions, he not only pierces their minds with secret fear, but extorts a confession which they would gladly avoid. This is what the Lord is up to. And it's a beautiful thing. How, how gracious of God to bring adversity so as to search us and to try us, to, to break down our defenses and and to cut through all of our justifications, to pierce our minds with fear, a godly fear, so that we would see the truth finally and speak the truth in confession. How gracious of God to draw out of us a heartfelt confession of sin. These brothers are not exactly accurate when they imagine that their terrible circumstances are a sign of God's, you know, tit-for-tat dealing with them, that's not, a, that's not an accurate understanding. But they are exactly right that the Lord is orchestrating these events. They're wrong to, to believe that these circumstances are a sign of God's displeasure and his judgment. Ultimately, they're not. These are a sign of God's kindness and his salvation the way the these brothers described themselves at the border you'd, you'd think they were a troop of boy scouts they may not be spies but that's about the only thing that they're not they are we've seen they're murderers they're sexual degenerates they're kidnappers, they're merciless, they're serial liars. They have a long, long history of family dysfunction. But these brothers are also the recipients of very great and precious promises. These, these brothers are the backbone of a great nation that God is in the process of forming. God plans to use this family, not some other clean, you know, perfect family, this dysfunctional family. He's planning to use these people mightily for his glory. But it's going to require a lot of sanctification, a lot of repentance, a lot of, it's going to require some miraculous transformations. And unfortunately, we don't see all of that happen all at once. Okay, we, in fact, we, as this chapter unfolds, we go on to see some more dysfunction. Even, well, look at Reuben. When Reuben is trying to convince his dad to let them have, go back with Benjamin, Reuben interjects, well, first, Reuben's the one popping off in this chapter. First, in the prison, he, he's, as, as, the, as their consciences are being, enlivened, Reuben interjects with a bunch of I told you so's. And then once we're back in Canaan, uh, we see Jacob being very angry and fearful and stubborn. And we, we see Reuben making a very rash, 
proposal that might have tragically resulted in the in the death of his of his sons so i mean it's 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 kind of like it's it's a right instinct to want to uh bring benjamin but it's just it's so ham-handed it's so wrong to offer rashly offer the lives of your children so my point is that things are still incredibly messy and broken when this chapter closes in in fact it looks like this family is intent on driving themselves into extinction But the Lord's not finished with them. This chapter was like what happened on Friday. Okay, a blast of 50 degree weather to soften up some some big nasty pieces of ice. And praise the Lord, he's not finished with me or with you either. We're we're still hard-hearted and messy and broken we're a bunch of sheaves that need to learn how to bow so brothers and sisters let us let us hope in his promises let us we can hope and and we've got reason to hope because his promises are always ripening they're flowering as we speak let's trust his Let's trust his presence, even if it's not exactly recognizable in every moment. Friends, let's yield to his providence, even when it is extraordinarily rough. And I know that it is extraordinarily rough for many of you, even right now. And by God's grace, let's realize his his purposes for us in repentance and faith. Amen.